Well, we've mentioned during the, the time of Advent, we do go through these, these themes of hope, of love, of joy, and of peace. And I'd mentioned how, how Paul, uh, Thomas, he's mentioned several times, just the reality that in life, like, we're all seeking hope. I, I don't know very many people who aren't seeking love, that aren't seeking joy, that aren't seeking peace in their life. It's just a universal thing that people are seeking. It's because we're created that way. We're creating God's image. We're created to seek those things. And there's lots of places we look for those things, but ultimately they're fulfilled and found in Jesus. Hope, joy, love. And today, as we look, we talk about peace. And we'll see that as we look at Jesus and look how he is our peace. This week I've also been thinking about just different pictures of, of peace. Uh, just ways and places that we just see just that picture of peace maybe in our life. I think for me, when it, sometimes it's a quiet Saturday morning uh, with no agenda. It's just kind of that peace. Or maybe summiting a mountain or finishing a hike where you kind of have a destination. You've worked hard, you've gotten there, and then there's just kind of this, just this peace that hits in that moment of that. Or maybe it's... Um, Putting on a, a new pair of socks. I'm wearing new socks this morning. That wasn't in my notes, but, you know, just new socks. And you're like, it's a good thing. It's a good day to put on a, um, new socks. And I also think of just peace, like breaking through the storms in our life, times of sorrow and, and just even ongoing difficulty. And yet, in the middle of it, uh, the presence of Christ enters in through words and scripture or through a brother and sister in Christ that speak truth of the gospel and just that peace breaks in. I also think of one of my favorite stories of Jesus is when he is in the boat with the disciples. They're out on, on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, and they're in, the, in a fishing boat out on that sea. And all of a sudden, a crazy storm comes up with really high winds. Uh, we know about that, right? This last week was crazy high winds. I went out here and part of our landscaping stuff with the tar the the weed barrier and mulch was blowing all over the place and pelting me and it was crazy. And I, anyway, so, so this is just a t probably 10 times worse on the water uh, with these waves coming up on them. And the disciples are scared and they go to Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the boat, remember? And the disciples go and they wake him up. They're like, Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus gets up and he says he rebukes the wind and the sea and says, peace. Be still. And it says, then the wind ceased, and there was great calm. So not just that the wind ceased, but there's calm. I, I, I don't, I've never really been sailing. I'm not a, a boater. I don't know. What do you call a person that does boats a lot? I don't know. I'm not one of those people, so I don't know. But I, I have a feeling when wind ceases, it takes a little while for the waves to, to settle as well. But we have a picture of just they're just being calm. And Jesus brings that, and he uses these physical things to, to give us pictures of what his peace is. I also think of a picture of a mother holding a newborn child right after birth, uh, maybe just hours after birth, and there's just this peace. Or even um, we've experienced, too, even, even in adoption, there's, there's months and months of labor that goes into that, and when you get to, to finally call that child your own, there's just a moment of this, this peace. During Advent, we do look at a time where Jesus was born and entered this world, and the one who is peace enters in. So 
He is our peace. We're going to see that today. As we've been doing through this series, we're looking into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's different things that were prophesied that pointed to a king to come, a savior to come. And they were hundreds of years before Jesus appeared. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. And they pointed to him. So we've been looking in different passages. And it's really been a little study of a little uh, minor prophet study. It's been kind of fun to kind of walk through and do. And today we are in Micah, in the book of Micah. Um, so if you want to turn there, it's kind of right. It's not far before the New Testament, before the Gospels break in. And I don't have the page number. I should have written it down. I normally do. And I don't have it here. Um, but look for that Micah. Micah, Jonah, we have, we have Jonah over there, and we just, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, okay, what is it? 866, if you're looking in one of our Bibles, so. So we're going to look at the, the context of Micah and the passage, and then we're going to look at Micah 5, 2 through 5, look at that, and then we're going to see how it points us to Jesus, and then see how um, we see even the peace of Christ impact us now, so. The context, so Micah, uh, Micah, is, the author of Micah is, is Micah, um, so, so that was the easy one, I didn't need to look that one up anywhere, but Micah, it means, um, his name means who, who is like the Lord, or who is like Yahweh, the one true God, who, who is like the Lord, so that's his name, he prophesied during the time of Isaiah, um, it was around the, the 700 BC time. And he's from a small village. Uh, Mike is from this small village that was southwest of Jerusalem, about 22 miles. It's kind of an unknown, small, little place. And there's really nothing worthy about his heritage of, of, of Micah. There's nothing specifically noteworthy. Just kind of this unknown guy from this unknown town that the Lord chooses to bring this message. And he prophesied during, in Jerusalem. Um, also during the time of King Hezekiah, one of the kings that he prophesied during, and in Jeremiah, that, that king actually heeded the words of Micah at one time. Uh, it's a message, it's a book that has a lot of both um, judgment and also hope. And there's sections of clear judgment and hope that the people, and he's bringing this message that the people of God, that they've turned away from him, uh, and they've turned to other gods and other things, and they've there, there's even, a, during this time, there's growing prosperity. And under the time of, of King Uzziah, before Micah, there was a time of prosperity and wealth, but uh, there's also a growth in injustice to the poor. And they're rejecting the Lord, um, the leaders. There's a addressing of all the leaders of both the, the kings and the priests, and they address them. And... Uh, they've turned away from the Lord. They're not leading the people well. So there's this message of this judgment, but it doesn't end in judgment. The judgment we see, the purpose of it is to bring about restoration and salvation. So we see that, that there's not just judgment, but for the purpose of the Lord doing some things in the midst of the people. So uh, we see this theme, judgment, and yet hope that breaks through, that the Lord is still going to redeem, he's still going to bring good out of his discipline and his judgment upon the people. So let's read, I'm going to read just a few verses from Micah that kind of gives us a feel of both this judgment and then also this great hope that breaks in in this book. I'm going to read in Micah 7, verses, first verses 2 through 4. 
2 through 4. Let me read those. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil and to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. So they're saying, there's not a lot of good going on. In the day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. This is, this is kind of sums up um, the message of, of warning and judgment to come. But then again, it doesn't end there. There's hope that breaks through again and again in Micah. The Lord doesn't leave them in judgment, but brings about uh, redemption. So verses 7 through 9 in Micah gives us a picture of that hope. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemies. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So, so here we see that there, there's hope that breaks forth. And uh, one de- I saw one description of Micah from the guys at the, the Bible Project. That's always a good place if you want just kind of a summation of a book. If you look up the Bible Project, I don't agree with everything they say, but it's still helpful. And they said, so there, in Micah, there's judgment. It's called God, they paraphrase it as, God must confront and judge evil among people and then hope. God's covenant, love, and promise are more powerful than human evil. And I love that. God's, it's a hope that God's love and his promises are more powerful than, than the evil that's in the world, that he's greater. And even the book of Micah ends in that. It talks about the character of God. This is the end note of the whole book. And really, this speaks about who God is. This is in Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So it just describes, God, that he is one. He's slow to anger. He's full of steadfast love. And he's willing to take our sins and, and cast them away from us. That we can have forgiveness. That we can have hope. And this is ultimately who God is. There's all this judgment, but with the purpose of ultimately bringing about salvation here. So then we look at the text today. What are we going to? We're going to look at Micah 5. So again, turn back over to that. Maybe we've gone back and forth a little bit. And we see this passage that points us to Jesus. We see it in the Gospels, and we see in the stories of Jesus that he fulfills these things. They were written hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet he completely fulfilled them in his life. And we see it begin in verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it begins 
And this is a word from the Lord of salvation and deliverance. And this salvation and this deliverance, it has this small and unexpected origin. It's kind of a surprise thing. So Bethlehem, representing the city of Bethlehem and Ephrathah, the clan that was there. And so they say in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it's a city of no prominence. It's not a large place. And Ephrathah, the clan, uh, the people, the segment of people of the Jews are not very important. They're, not, they're just small. Uh, there's not anything noteworthy uh, about this place. Uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, one person said it's the smallest, most insignificant clan in Judah. Now, it is the place where King David comes from, but that even uh, an amazing thing. But we really should, we shouldn't be surprised that God begins a work of salvation, of restoration, of rescue, of, of the entrance of this Savior King, this Messiah King from a small and overlooked place. It, it shouldn't really be a surprise to us. Uh, because we know that God, more often than not, he works through weakness, even our weakness. So it shouldn't be a surprise that it comes from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Too little to be among the clans of Judah, just small. I think of that, of the story in the Old Testament about Gideon. Maybe you're familiar with that study of that uh, the Lord raised up Gideon to be a warrior to rescue or to deliver the people. And... When an angel comes to Gideon, he says, man, I'm from the, the weakest clan, and I'm the least in my whole family, in my father's house. Um, why would you choose me? But God chooses him and delivers the people. I think of David, King David, um, who killed Goliath. Well, Samuel, when he goes out to, to anoint David as king and goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse brings out all of his sons, and none of them are the ones that the Lord chooses to be king. And, and Samuel's like, well, do you, have, do you have any other sons? Oh, yeah, David. He's, he's out watching sheep. He's our youngest. And who does God choose? He chooses David. He's been watching sheep and appoints him. I think of the Apostle Paul from the New Testament. He called himself the chief of sinners, the least of all the apostles. And then he says of us, Paul says that we are, we're like jars of clay, um, Nothing really beautiful, nothing really strong about us. But God has chosen us to be vessels, to be ones who carry the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. So we're vessels of clay, and yet we're entrusted with the amazing gospel. That's how God works. One commentator said, The small size of Bethlehem reminds one of a common biblical theme. When God is about to do something great, Human estimates of status, size, power, and influence are completely irrelevant. In fact, God often deliberately chooses someone who would probably, who the world would dismiss as the most unlikely candidate for carrying out God's mission. That's just how he works. That's how our God works. And even this year, it was great that we were able to, as a church, be able to serve our community and we had our uh, Christmas festival. We were able to, to get gifts to families who, who needed gifts this year, who couldn't otherwise afford them. And we were used by the Lord to do that. Just as little Derby Hill. And in Loveland, uh, we were one of two churches that, that did that and t had one of those events. And that one of them was Foundations and then, then us, little Derby Hill. So the Lord is using us. Um, we should be excited 
and we realized that we could have actually had double the, peop- the, the people come and receive gifts at our church than, than we signed up for. And well, Lord willing, we'll do that next year. The Lord can use us. And he works in, in extraordinary ways, even through, through Calvary Derby Hill. But during this time, the rulers and the kings during the time when forces came against Jerusalem, where would they go? They would go to stronger nations. They would go to nations and they would pay them tribute or pay them to come to help them deliver them. And here we see the Lord says, no, from this small town that is too little to even just be named among the clans of Judah, a king is going to come and bring rescue and bring everlasting peace. That's what we see. So it, begin, it continues. Let's, let's read that again. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. A king is coming. A king is coming. We talked about that last week in the book of Zephaniah. And it spoke, this is from Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So the Lord comes as king of Israel, who is the Lord God. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. And here another, this is another account, another prophecy of the one, the king, Messiah, that's going to come and rescue his people and come from Bethlehem. And he's from ancient of days, from old. The immediate context would be that, that he is one who's going to come from the line of David. And he would ultimately fulfill this. And we know that Jesus is one who ultimately fulfills his prophecy, and he does come from the line of David. And also, though, he's a son of God. He's the king of kings that from before creation he was and is and will always be. And we, we see that he fulfills that. We'll get to that a little bit later as well. Let's skip down now to verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord. So this king is going to shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So there's this king that's going to come. And he's going to shepherd his people. It points probably to David who was one again. He was out in the pasture shepherding his people before the Lord called him to be king of, of Israel. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, often the rulers are referred to as those who are shepherds. And this one will shepherd well. He will guard his people. He will protect his people. They will be secure. He'll be this great ruler. And his rule will go and extend to the ends of the earth. This is this Messiah King that's going to come. And then verse 5, it's the first part of that. And he shall be their peace. He will be their peace. He will be the peace of the people. So this king will come about and he will be the source and the giver of peace. He will be their peace. So it's more than just a a feeling of peace, but it's a person who is peace to them that will come. And here in the context of it, there's a a context of that of a military peace, a political peace, but... It extends far past that geopolitical peace that this king would bring. As we know from Isaiah 9, also prophesying, pointing to Jesus, it says that he is a prince of peace. And then we think of this Messiah, shepherd, king, who is our peace at his birth, as we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ and his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection. 
the angels came and they announced the birth of this Prince of Peace. And what did they say in Luke 2, 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, peace among whom he is pleased. So this begins now. We know that this passage, it was pointing us to the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. So we're going to look to Jesus now and see these things. So Bethlehem. Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem. It was in the Lord's sovereign timing that Caesar Augustus, he issued this decree that everyone had to return to their ancestral hometown to be registered. And Mary and Joseph, Mary was, was going to have her baby any time. And the Lord moved, so they, it wasn't that Mary and Joseph were like, okay, well, I know about this prophesy, prophecy in Micah. We need to get going to Bethlehem, make sure we have that baby. No, it's the Lord moving them, and he moves them so that this prophecy could be fulfilled. And they go to Bethlehem, and, and Jesus is, is born. Born in Bethlehem in this small town, to a poor and overlooked couple. Nothing really extraordinary about Mary and Joseph as far as in the eyes of the world. And he was born in a stable, laid in a manger. And you think um, he could have been born in a castle or in the home of a noble leader, of a, maybe a religious leader, something prominent. But no, he's born to a carpenter and a young virgin woman. Mary. So Jesus, he came in all humility. He didn't avoid suffering and trials. He didn't even avoid temptation. Hebrew says he, he felt the weight of temptation without sin. And he came for sinners. He came for the lowly. He came for those in need. He came for, for those who, who were from Bethlehem and little unknown places. And like Micah, who was one who was from an unknown place. Jesus came for all of us. And Bethlehem itself, the, the name of Bethlehem, the city, it means house of bread. And we've talked about that before. And we know that Jesus, he fed the 5,000. Then he fed the 4,000, a group of, of Jews and a group of Gentiles. And he fed them and they were satisfied. And it points us to the fact that Jesus is one who satisfies, that we are created for. That he can satisfy our heart and our soul. What we, we need most is Jesus. And he said, I'm the bread of life. You come to me, you'll find life. You find peace, that pursuit that our world looks for, that all of us are looking for hope and joy and peace and love. They're ultimately found in Christ, the one who is the bread of life. Again, he's from old, from ancient of days as well. Jesus fulfills these scriptures perfectly. The one who was from the line of David, but also from eternity past. He's always been. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures that just point to that in the New Testament. John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Or Colossians 1, 15 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers 
by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Just as Colossians speaks of that, he holds all things together. We've talked before about how this world is so finely tuned that even in science, they try to figure out how could this be? We know that it points to the one who is a creator. Hopefully, uh, you've been reading some in the, in the Advent book, Fixated, that we gave you guys uh, about fixing our eyes on Jesus that Tim Chester wrote. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from that that just talk about this, and I, I found it very encouraging. So let me just read that. If the Son were to stop sustaining, the Son, Jesus Christ, were to stop sustaining all things, then the world would disintegrate into a chaotic mush of subatomic particles. The structure of atoms is held together by his word. The worldwide ecosystem that supports life are maintained by his word. If the sun were to stop his sustaining work, then the chair on which you sit would dissolve into a cloud of chaotic energy. The gravitational forces holding the universe together would collapse into an enormous black hole in an accelerated act of entropy. The baby in the manger held the atoms of that manger in place by his mighty word. As a human being, he was genuinely weak and vulnerable, but as a divine Lord, he moved the stars across the sky, including the star that signaled his birth. This is the son's power. His truth also revealed his love. When the soldiers spat on him with their whips, uh, and when, the, when their whips bit into him, when they drove the nail through his wrist, his divine power was giving them breath. Today, Jesus is still powerful. Uh, it's still the powerful word who sustains all things. Just as he once brought order from chaos, fullness from emptiness, and light from darkness, so he continues to sustain order against chaos, fullness against emptiness, and light against darkness. Jesus sustains even us, his people. So he sustains us. He's from ancient of days. He will stand, too, as it speaks about, he will stand and shepherd his people, his flock, in strength and majesty. He's a king who is a shepherd who cares for his people, providing for them a strong shepherd. As Jesus himself said in John 10, he talked about, he said, I, I am the good shepherd. This is from John 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then it goes on, talks about the hired hand that doesn't care for the sheep. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know my father, know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. So Jesus says, I am that good shepherd. I'm that king who cares for and willing to die for you. And it also, as Micah points to it, that he's great to the ends of the earth. I think of when Jesus died and he rose again, he appeared to the disciples and he said to them in, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just think, Jesus sent them out and we get to hear about Jesus and the ends of the earth and small overlooked places. They hear about Jesus because people are faithful to go and share as well. This is Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. For he is our peace. The king that comes says that he shall be your peace. And Jesus is our peace. The one who came and died in our place that we could have peace with God. Let me continue. Read from Mark 5, 33 through 34. There's this story you're probably familiar with where, where Jesus heals this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. No one can help her. She touch, touches Jesus' robe and she's healed. And then um, she's confronted with Jesus and Jesus speaks to her. And this is from Mark 5. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, and she'd been healed, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So here Jesus, he heals her. And there's a true peace in the sense that she's healed. But she's also, through her faith, that she is saved. Uh, she's forgiven. And peace comes into her life. Think of John 14. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So peace. Or John 16, 33, says, I have said these things to you, that, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble and tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Or John 20, 21, this is when Jesus rose again, and he appears to the disciples, and, and he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So he says, I'm your peace. You forgive, you're forgiven. And now I'm sending you out too so that you can continue to share about this peace that's found in me. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the bread of life, this shepherd king who brings in peace. There's one song that I always think about when I, I talk about the peace of Christ. There's this song by Sovereign Grace Music. They have an album that's for kids and the song Peace. And it was one that uh, one time in our life we played on, I played it on repeat a whole bunch of times one evening <laughs> over and over again. It was one time when, when Kelly, she was pregnant with Rachel and, and it looked like it just things weren't going well and it looked like maybe she'd have the baby early and we were in China and we were in a hospital where they told us, hey, this might be an okay time to have a baby in America, but don't have it here now. And we were so alone, and it was, we were so scared. And, um, yeah, just listen to this song over and over again. That spe speaks about the peace of Christ. This peace, you give me pr peace. When the storms come and I'm afraid, peace, you give me peace. When I trust in the words you say, you give me peace. If you can calm the sea, then you can comfort me. If, if the winds obey your voice, why should I fear their noise? And though my eyes can't see, I know you're with me. Peace. You give me peace. And I just would listen to that over and over. And the Lord was just so kind to break through with peace. So as we see that this passage looks, points us to Jesus, the question is, well, well how, how do we have peace today in Jesus? How does that point us to peace now? Well, first, he is our peace. First, he is our peace with God, but also peace with others. But he, he's our peace in this life under the sun. He brings 
peace. First, that forgiveness, that we're made right with a holy God, that we're forgiven because of what Jesus has done, that he died on the cross and rose again, that he could offer us peace. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means we've been made right with God, with a holy God, because we've been forgiven, that the righteousness, that all the goodness of Christ was placed upon us, and he took all of his sin upon himself, that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace. But then we also have peace with one another, that as we're forgiven, then we're able to forgive others. And as we've seen in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 2 that we studied not long ago, that all of us, we have the, the same, we find hope and peace in Christ and we've been forgiven. We have one Messiah. We have one Savior. And we all have the same need. Not one of us comes more righteous or more good or better than the other, but we come all as those are in need and we're able to then have peace with one another because we have the same Savior, the same hope, and we're forgiven and we can offer forgiveness to other people. Peace. And peace found not, it's a peace not found in becoming great, not becoming big and becoming famous and becoming an influencer, but peace found in, in humility before God, before God the Father and becoming um, before Jesus Christ, our Lord, peace with our shepherd king. It's a bit like John the Baptist said. He said of Jesus, he said, he must increase and I must, I must decrease. The humility, remember Jesus, he came from this unknown, small little place. Some of my, my favorite books I've mentioned before, if I were to have a pile of books that kind of just speak about kind of how my heart beats is, is these books called, one of them The Imperfect Pastor, The Imperfect Disciple, Ordinary by Michael Horton, that's a good book, Blessed Are the Misfits by Hanson. These are kind of books that resonate with me. And, and, and Radical, it's a good book, but I just gravitate toward Ordinary. I'm sorry, that's who I am. Um, but this is one quote, but this book, Ordinary, by Michael Horton. He's actually quoting someone else. He's quoting this gal who, um, early on in life, she just thought she would utterly change the world and be a, a revolutionary. And, and the Lord just had different plans for her and took her on a different path. And she writes these things. And I love this. I, I may have short, shared it with you before, but uh, if you're like my memory, you've probably forgotten, so I'll remind you again. A prominent new monastic, uh, mon uh, monastic community's house had this sign on a wall that famously read, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> she says, my life is really rich in dirty dishes and diapers these days and really short in revolutions. I go to church full, a church full of older people who live pretty normal middle class lives, uh, they live in middle-class houses, uh, but I've really come to appreciate this community, to see their lifetime of sturdy faithfulness to Jesus, their commitment to prayer, and their, their tangible, beautiful generosity that they show to those around them in unnoticed, unimpressive, unmarketable, unrevolutionary ways. And each week, we average sinners and boring saints gather around ordinary bread and wine, and Christ himself is there with us.
So God uses us in little ways. And we don't always know how he's going to use us. But we're not called to be famous and be influencers, but to be faithful. Jesus can and will use us as we seek him, to actively look for him and wait for him to return. And even if we were born in Bethlehem, or maybe born in Nun, or Alt, or Stinky Greeley like I was, or wherever it might be, he'll still use us. Even if our job or our credentials may not be really impressive, and the world isn't really watching us, he will use us, not because, not because we're great, but because he is great. Not because we're amazing vessels of the gospel, but because the gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing. It's this gospel of peace, peace and grace given to us that we might be then conduits of grace and peace to other people that don't have it yet. That we might point people to Jesus, and that might start in your home with your family, with your grandkids, or where the Lord has planted you in your work, that you just might be a conduit of God's grace to them, or at your school. The good news of the Messiah shepherd who came to us sinners, who came and died for us, who came and took on flesh and all of its weaknesses, becoming man. The good news is that we are not called to be to be great and sinless and extraordinary in order to find salvation and peace and hope and eternal life, but that Jesus came in humility. He came and laid down the glory of heaven and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, becoming a servant, becoming obedient, even to death on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we could be holy, and even stand before a righteous God, Jesus. He's the prince of peace. He's the giver and the source of peace. And maybe in your life, in this point in your life, you, you, you're on that search for peace. You've been searching for life and hope and love and joy and peace for a long time, and you realize that it's hard to find in this world. Well, it's because it's not found in things of this world, but found in Jesus Christ first, and then all good gifts that he does give us in this world are there as well, but it's found in Christ Jesus alone. So this morning, maybe you're on that journey of seeking peace. And Jesus even says, turn from your sins and trust in me and find peace. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find peace and forgiveness that's found in, in Christ alone. He just calls you to turn from yourself and your sins and trust in him as Lord and Savior, who's died for you and for your sins and risen again, that you can have life. And for those of us who have trusted, might we be reminded of our Prince of Peace, that it's in him. Even in the midst of the storm, he can break through, even in mornings like this, and be reminded, too, that Jesus from Bethlehem came and that he can use us um, in the lots of crazy, amazing ways in this coming year. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who, who came. He wasn't born in a castle. He was born and laid in a manger. 
who didn't avoid suffering, but entered in, being willing to, to suffer and die in our place for our sins on the cross. And we thank you that he is the one from ancient of days, the one who always was, always will be, who rose again, showing indeed that he's the son of God, one who could bring peace, that we can have hope of, of life now, eternal life and peace with him. We thank you for that today. And I, I pray that even, even this morning that the peace of Christ will break into lives in, in all sorts of different ways this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for your kindness, even of using us. Lord, help us to know how you would faithfully use us over the next day and month and next year and years to send simple, uh, unremarkable, unmarketable ways to be faithful vessels of the gospel, the gospel of peace of Jesus Christ. Help us to be those. In Jesus' name I pray.